Welcome to Elevating Consciousness, the podcast that helps you discover deeper levels of truth, meaning, and wholeness. I'm your host, Artem Zen, and our guest today is the author of Awake, It's Your Turn, a book that serves as a comprehensive yet simple guide in facilitating awakening. He experienced awakening at the age of 24, but didn't start teaching until many years later when he noticed that while having regular conversations with people, they would start experiencing profound shifts in their experience to reality. He currently works full-time as an anesthesiologist, and in his free time, he works with people undergoing the awakening process. Angelo DeLulo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we dive right in, I want to just kind of put a little context, kind of how you came into my world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, there's, you know, there's a lot of spiritual teachers out there, meditation teachers, uh, but there seems to be something about doctors teaching and awakening that seems to have the greatest resonance with me. Mm-hmm. Um, first, it was Daniel Ingram, who is an ex-ER physician and author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, um, which is one of the books that has impacted me the most over the last couple of years. I actually had him on the first episode of this podcast, and then several listeners commented on that episode that I should interview you. So I started to research you, and it turns out you're also a doctor by profession. Um, I watched a couple of interviews, started reading your book, doing the meditations on your app, and, and I was hooked. And similar to Daniel, I found your approach very pragmatic, but more simple and less technical. It does seem that Buddhism also had a strong impact on you, but the way you teach awakening, it just feels very clean, very natural, almost free of any tradition. So that's just kind of like context um, to like how you came in. And yeah, I don't know what it, what it is that I don't know if it's like having the background with being a doctor just makes it more prag- pragmatic. But um, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Um, no, I uh, as when you mentioned the sort of non-referencing of any specific tradition, uh, I thought to say that. Um, that I think that's, for me, that's important that I can express this, this that we're talking about, um, without referencing really any kind of dogma or specific map or way of approaching it in a philosophical way or a historical way, but not because I am anti-tradition, I'm not at all, uh, and there's tremendous, there's a tremendous amount to be learned from Buddhism and, and other traditions, um, but there's something about the realization itself that's that's just alive in the moment. And that's for me or my instinct tells me that's really the only place I would trust myself to teach from or to point from. Um, so I think it took many years before this uh, integrated enough or settled enough uh, to the to where I would trust that I could just speak in the moment, from the moment and as the moment. And, and let this unfold however it does for whomever it does. And it seems to know when to come up. Um, I don't have any agenda whatsoever to talk about it uh, or to wake anybody up or wake everybody up. Uh, and yet it's amazing when conditions align what is possible and, and the degree to which people wake up. Um, so uh, yeah, I do reference uh, certain traditions. I reference Buddhism here and there, but I'm no expert on Buddhism at all. You know, uh, Daniel Ingram has a far, far, far deeper and more nuanced knowledge of Buddhism than I do. 
Uh, but I did, I did spend some time as a Zen Buddhist and, and I did, um, uh, did sashins and the, the kind of meditation retreats and so forth and work through koans and all that. Um, but for me, it's interesting. That was kind of after the fact, after the awakening and the, and the realization, um, it hadn't fully integrated, but the insights were there. So it was, it was interesting to go back and sort of do it as almost like playing the role of someone in the relative world going through that. And yet there was no identity left there anymore. It's, it's a very strange thing and hard to talk about, but I did learn a lot, um, mostly about how to convey it, perhaps how to, um, how to, how to work with other people and practical means as they move through these, these, uh, these experiential insights. Yeah, the, the way you describe it, like that's exactly how I experience uh, your teachings in your book. It's just like so clean. Um, you know, on my website, I have, you know, books I recommend and I put them in categories. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, where do I put his book? Do I put it in meditation? Do I put it in spirituality? Or do I make a whole separate category called awakening? Because it just, it just felt that clean. Like it didn't fit into anything. It was like, this is just awakening and, and nothing else. Um, so I guess let's just dive right into awakening. Um, and awakening isn't something that you can put into words yet teachers will still use words to point to what it is. And although you may explain awakening differently to people at a different point of the path, how do you explain awakening in the simplest way to the broadest audience of those who are very new to spirituality or meditation? What is awakening? I love it. That's a great question. How, how do you say it to the, the broadest audience? That question is important um, to me because I find that often as people wake up in whatever tradition or even if it's not in a tradition, in whatever way they're perceiving it happening, whatever life context it's happening in, they tend to sort of, not everyone, uh, but, but, but it's, it's, it's just human nature. We tend to toward a, sort of purvey or convey or describe the process from that context. But the thing about realization is it really is in no context. Everything else in the world is in some sort of context. Everything in our life is in some sort of context. But the beauty of realization itself, or let's just say unfiltered reality as it is right now, is it's not bound to any context. It is absolutely free of all stories, narratives, context, traditions, um, and so with that said, going back to having not talked about this for, for 15 years after these shifts for me, uh, publicly or really to anyone, uh, because I, I didn't want to do it until I could trust myself to speak to a wide enough audience, uh, because I knew it wasn't just about Buddhists, right? Of course, it wasn't just about meditators. It wasn't just about Hindu, whatever. It was about anyone who perceives themselves as suffering and can intuit anywhere inside themselves that there must be a different way to live. And that can be an atheist. It can be a man, a woman, a you know, 18-year-old, a 79-year-old. It can be a Christian, a Buddhist, someone who it doesn't matter what tradition or what belief system you have at all. That's, that's the fascinating thing about it. Um, so, so it is in, in my heart important to, to, to speak about this in a way that 
the the most unlikely person will hear it, you know, and and go, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I've been looking for. And I hear people tell me that pretty frequently. Um, I did a series, the probably the most um, widely um, accessible series of interviews I did with, were with Zubin with Z Dog MD. Yeah. I had so many people tell me, you know. I never believed in spirituality. I thought it was woo woo. I'm too scientific. I didn't get it. But somehow the way you said it, it clicked. And I went, oh my God, that's what he's addressing. What I've always sort of wanted to address, but I never really knew it was even possible. That's, that's music to my ears. That's, that's my goal. If there is a goal. Um, so how to go about that? That's the question. Um, again, sometimes sort of stripping it of, of too much doctrine helps. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's very psychological. We, we're, our minds are wired to, um, without even knowing it, sometimes we obviously know it a lot of times, but often we don't even realize we, we tend to compartmentalize ourselves. We put ourselves in, oh, I'm a Buddhist or I'm not a Buddhist. I'm this or I'm not that. And we tend to think in those terms. So when we hear messages or hear a podcast, watch a video, start reading a book, even look at the title of a book, we have a tendency to filter right away and go, this is for me or it's not for me but I know it's for anyone who's suffering. So I had to really work with how I wrote that book to make sure I don't filter people out in the first few chapters until they get a, a taste and go, oh, okay, this, this can be about me. Yeah, maybe I'm not a Buddhist. I don't believe in that stuff. I don't even believe in religion, but he's talking about something that I can resonate with. So um, the, the feel of it for me, of, of finding that sweet spot where you, you can really touch people in a very human direct way um, and, and say, hey, you can, you can get under your suffering. Um, it feels really like, like what Buddha would have described as the middle way. You know, it's not too much of this and it's not too much of that. It's just, you know, walking that line to where the mind isn't grabbing a hold of it and going, that's me or that's not me. And I don't want the mind to do either one, really. I want to keep it in the middle. Uh, and so that it, it feels like maybe it's, it's being satisfied or soothed. You know, the ego feels like it has something to work with. It's getting somewhere. And yet what I'm really pointing to is underneath that it's to, to the unconditioned, to the place where there is no coming or going, you know, to where the problem of birth and death does not even need to be solved because it was never there. So, um, so for me, it's, it's something like the middle way, something like being able to communicate in both the relative and absolute simultaneously and having the flexibility to talk to people wherever they are. Um, another way of saying this is, I don't have the recipe for how you wake up, not you as the person interviewing me, but you as list, the listener, you do. And, and so I, I, I don't try to force any paradigm or structure on awakening on anyone. I literally listen to them, pay attention to them, open my heart to them. And at most I reflect, but I, I can accept fully and unequivocally where they are in the relative sense as awake or asleep as they are, as absolute unfiltered reality that doesn't need to be fixed, changed, or anything, because that is also, that relative is also the absolute. So, so that, that's the key. The key is you already have what you need to wake up. Of course you do. It's your true nature. You don't need my teaching. You don't need a doctrine. It's just a matter of learning to trust yourself in the right way. But it not, doesn't mean trusting your thoughts or beliefs but really it doesn't even mean trusting your emotions as, as such. It means trusting an instinct or an intuition that goes beyond all of that, that we all have because it is our true nature. So it's something like that. Is that helpful? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I always equated awakening being the same or similar to liberation. Mm -hmm. However, in your book, you make a distinction. 
So what is the difference between awakening and liberation? That's a great question. So now we'll get a little technical. Um, so to me, but first of all, um, the way I'm going to describe this isn't, isn't like, quote unquote, the right way, because labels are just labels, right? So for instance, if you live in one country and I live in another country, we have a different word for chair, but we're both talking about a chair, right? So teachers uh, that know, or pe even people who don't teach, but they have deep uh, experiential insight and realization, they may use different words than, than the words I'm using. Uh, and I know teachers who, are, who do, uh, and we're talking about the same insights, we're just using slightly different words or different words for different stages. So this is just one way of, of using terminology for this. Um, when I use the word awakening, I generally mean the first true shift in identity. Um, Kensho is a word in Zen or uh, Satori. Also, you could often describe it as stream entry, depending on how you define it or how sort of deep that, that awakening is. Um, but it, it, to me, it really is the first time identity actually shifts. And it can be a really big deal experientially. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's experientially not that big of a deal, but instinctually, it's a very big deal. Um, you know something has definitely changed. Up, up to that point, there are often pre-tastes of awakening, like something very real, uh, very out of the extraordinary, extraordinarily real and extraordinarily intimate has occurred in your life, but they tend to remain in the experiential realm, lasting a few hours to maybe a couple of days where I was in a type of presence or flow that I had never experienced before. And it was dramatically and markedly different than what it was like right before I went into it and right when I came out of it. And yet the person describing that to me often, it, it's clear that they are still perceiving themselves as the experiencer of that experience. And that is the key. When, an, when awakening happens, it may have those outward qualities of the mystical experience, the flow, the intimacy, the dissolution, even all this. Um, but there's a key insight that is not any of those things that matters. And that is, I am looking at reality somehow from a different place than I was before. And it's very obvious that in a, in a, certain way it can never really go back it doesn't mean you're enlightened and some people take this to be in, that, that they're enlightened and that's that's a big mistake but but it, it usually you know okay it's it's definitely not like this whole process is over but something has definitely fallen away and i can't really put my finger on it but things are different for sure and yet they are also the same you know and you hear this start to hear this kind of paradoxical uh, talk but to me that first shift that, that where identity has suddenly, it's like you suddenly take yourself to be something different than you did before. And that something is much more vast and less needing of a definition, actually. It's more free, more fluid, uh, identity-wise. That's what I usually call awakening. And I find that it typically does happen. It, again, it, it's, it's on a spectrum. For some people, it's really earth-shattering and it's the, the biggest thing that'll happen in your life experientially. For other people, it's like, oh, wow, okay. Hmm, something just completely changed. And I'm in a, a more clear, more authentic, more real and natural space than, than I was ever since maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe as a small child, I, I kind of remember this, but I don't know if I was even making memories at that time. So people will say things like that. Um, in Zen, it's, it's pretty, uh, um, pretty well-defined as kind of like your spiritual birth. It's really the first real step in a sense.
And a good Zen teacher will tell you this that you're experiencing, even though it's beyond anything you imagined before, this is just the beginning. You can expand this infinitely. Um, and that's, that's good teaching and be humble, you know, and um, be, be open to further insights and refinements. Another way of saying it is that this first shift is really um, de-identifying from the mind. It's, it's seeing very clearly that you're not your mind. You're not the thoughts and you're not what thoughts define at all, but not just as a, um, not just as an understanding, but as an instinctual ongoing knowing. Oh, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not, it's just, it's a falling away that, that just keeps happening. It's um, yeah. So it's a de-identification from thought. And the reason I say it that way is the next part, I'll just, I'll sort of divide this into two major parts, the, the realization process, the sort of next shift, the big shift um, out of identity altogether is more like de-identifying de from the body or from form itself, from the physical world, from, from time and space. And that I would, generally speaking, I would call liberation or enlightenment. Um, that comes after a series, usually, of experiential insights that kind of build on one another, but they don't have to. For some people, it's just like click and everything's different and it stays that way. It's, it's like awakening, but clearer and it doesn't, it doesn't go back. There's no, there's no self to reconstitute. There's no self to contract back into anymore. Um, nothing apart. There's no self apart. There's just the display of reality displaying however it does with nothing apart from it. No watcher, no perception of it even because it's just too intimate. Um, but, but the key, the real key to this in, in my opinion, in my experience is no self-realization that on a that there is clearly and definitively no sense of self anymore. That's different than, than, than believing there's no self. A lot of people believe there's no self after like some, you know, experiences and, and reading Buddhism and so forth, but there's that. Then there's the, the direct perception of no self that comes often with a deep awakening or sometime after awakening, but then to have absolutely no sense of self, well, there's not even anyone that could have it or not have it anymore. It's, it's just a whole order of magnitude different. It's not better. And it's not, it's not an exalted state. It's not, um, there's just nothing that can be said about it. And yet it's completely natural. It's obvious that it's, this is the only way it has ever been, the only way it ever could be. And it's like this for quote unquote everyone, but there aren't everyone's, there aren't, you know, it's, it's a very paradoxical thing to talk about. And yet it's very easy to, to say it from a con conventional standpoint, but internally, like if I were to reflect internally, um, to, to, to think the thought and believe I am enlightened is the weirdest, it's, it's a joke. It's like probably the biggest joke in the universe because what enlightenment means is to see that there's no collector of experiences that solidifies into a sense of self at all. So, um, so I usually refer, liberation is what I refer to as the, the sort of end of the separate self, complete end of it. Um, and with that, generally speaking, you could say, uh, depending on how you define it, but suffering ends. So personal suffering ends. That doesn't mean that you're not aware of the roots of suffering. 
and and you're and you're um it also doesn't mean you're not aware of the suffering in the world in the relative world that humans we cause a lot of suffering and we suffer a lot of suffering in fact you're more acute and aware of it actually it's you can't ignore it at all you can't ignore how you could contribute to it by interacting with with others in certain ways um that that, that we humans in the way we uh, mind identify uh, we do perpetuate violence uh, and and that sort of thing it, you can't ignore it it's very obvious so you're not in this sort of uh, detached state of just the absolute where there's nothing, there's no one, nothing happens. There's no, there's no suffering. There's no one to, that's kind of a phase you can go through, but that's, that's not true enlightenment in my experience. Um, true enlightenment is you really cannot make a distinction between the relative and absolute anymore at all. There's they're not even two things. It's, it's, it's very paradoxical, but, um, does that give a general sense? Yeah, for sure. I actually have a couple of more questions that were coming up. So I just want to check. So somebody who goes through an initial awakening, do they still have, do they still feel a sense of separation? Is there still a, a sense of separation? There's still suffering. Um, there is, is it just kind of like now they're aware of the ego. Now they're aware of the thoughts. Now they're seeing it and they're seeing it as separate. That's what this, would you, would you say that's how it is? That's very much how it is. Yes. And the vast majority of people, separation is a, um, a very specific insight, non-dual experience, the, the, the realization of non-duality or the, um, the dissolving of the perceptual filter that says there's literally space, that there's, there's objects apart from one another. That, and, and, and underlying that is a subject object experience of me being the subject and everything else being the object. When those aren't there, that's what I would call non-separation. What's interesting is I notice right after awakening, often people are experiencing that, but it's it's it kind of comes and goes, it's fleeting, and they're so just in awe of the whole experience. And there's it's just so it's such a from a contrast standpoint, it's so different than how they were experiencing themselves before that it they they don't even they can't even make a distinction between thoughts and non-separation and separation and, and objects and subject object. So I try not to confuse people with that stuff too much. Right after awakening, I usually just say, you have access to presence like you never did before. And they know that. And I say, just, just sit in that, just, just really steep yourself in it for a while. Just enjoy it. Cause they, they know there's nothing to do. They can see that presence isn't something they're causing. Does that make sense? That's probably one of the biggest insights is I don't have to cause presence to happen. It's already here. That's the beauty of that shift. Um, that identity doesn't need to solve itself. It's okay. It's, you know, it's, it, it, it's just fine the way it is. Um, and so, uh, so usually, yeah, at the very beginning, I kind of just encourage them not to, not to conceptualize, not to try to look for other shifts and other insights and so forth, because it'll just be confusing at first, probably, um, when they're really in that flow state, which lasts weeks to a couple months, usually sometimes longer, but, um, but they they know instinctually that the conditioning is starting to come back. They can feel it. They also know now that the thoughts aren't real, but they also see themselves re-identifying with thoughts from time to time. But the fact that they can see that happening is so important. That's that's grace. It's not comfortable, but it, it has to happen for this process to clarify itself and to continue to perpetuate you know, the, the, the parts of our experience we weren't seeing, the hidden parts, the shadow realm, the repressed emotions, all that, they, they kind of have to come into consciousness 
to, to in, let's just say to integrate. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, it's, you're not, not that you're not suffering. It's that you're seeing what suffering is very clearly. It's, you do know what suffering is then. I think after an awakening, it's intuitively becoming pretty obvious what suffering actually is. Maybe not the full mechanism, but you can see what it is. And you can see that you're, you've been doing it to yourself. And that's all important. But there's this weird thing where you watch yourself do it to yourself. And you, you have to, you can't not watch, you can't not do it. Um, it's, a, it's a very bizarre thing that people go through after awakening, but they have to go through it. And they know they have to go through it, which is good. Um, and it, it's, it's that working through the conditioning, um, it just has to happen for a while and it's uncomfortable. It's, it's, a you know, that post-awakening, um, phase after the honeymoon period's gone, it's, it's a mixture of periods of, of peace and flow and presence, intense presence and periods of like contraction and discomfort and seeing how much conditioning is actually there, which you, you were able to conveniently ignore before awakening, but now you can. So, um, so yeah, they're still suffering but it's coming and going, it's lighter, generally speaking, but it's more obvious. And that's, again, I think it's grace. It has to be that way because now we can't hide things from ourselves anymore. They have to come into consciousness. We have to, to work with them. And, and mostly what we're, we're really learning to do is work from non-resistance, is, is to live from non-resistance. But to do that, you first have to see the resistance. <laughs> you have to see that you're the one resisting you as what you take yourself to be even though identity now has shifted and you can kind of get behind even that, even that identity. And that's the key to all of this. So that's usually there. Um, the sense of separation and living in a world of objects is there. However, some people, I don't know if it's psychological or it's just conditions based. Some people really um, click into non-dual easily. Like, um, you know, like I had a retreat in July. It was just at my house. Like, I don't know, we had 10 people or something. And for whatever reason, we were I would, my lectures or my talks were just on non-dual a lot. And by the end, like half the people there were literally experiencing things in a non-dual way. So it's, it's a mental process that makes things seem dualistic. And if you really investigate, it's not really that hard to get under that after awakening. Um, but for it to completely stabilize to where you really don't experience separation anymore at all. And it's just this crystal clear, non-spacious intimacy um, that takes again, a few, a few further insights before that's obvious. So, um, yeah. And, and as one continues to investigate the, the perceptual filters that keep the sense of reactive self operating, the sense of relational self, the sense of self apart from objects, as, as we undermine these insights or clarify and see that they were never really there, they were always illus illusory, then that's when you start to notice, oh my gosh, suffering really is dropping away truly. Um, the sense of being a personal sufferer is dropping away because uh, strangely, because I, I don't feel like I live in a world anymore where I have to constantly maneuver to attenuate suffering. It's like, there's, you know, I, I've said before, suffering ends when you tr stop trying to end suffering, but you have to do it authentically through, through insight, yeah. Um, and then, and then after that, the, the sense of duality will actually collapse at some point. Um, and really often the only thing that's left is a very subtle self sense, but there, but you can see very clearly that there's no, nothing for it to refer to anymore. There's no separate self. There's no separate, there's no subject. In fact, there's not really objects, right? With, with non-duality being clear, there's not, there's not even perceiving. There's, there's just like vivid non-dual experience. So 
from then on, the sense of separate self, the sense of a, a subtle self sense that can just kind of be hanging around by because of the momentum of, I guess, mind or habit, um, it tends to just fall away. And it can happen suddenly or it can kind of fade away slowly. But that's the most fundamental sense of of identity of any kind that that identity itself even exists, uh, and yeah. So, so to me, it seems like like liberation. I I feel like it would be easier to understand because you could just be like, oh, I'm not you. There's no longer suffering. So it's like I'm not. There's no suffering, but because there's still suffering after awakening, to me that's like a little harder to understand. And I don't know if I'm just trying to map myself and like kind of, I guess I could share kind of what I went through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had really profound experiences um, using 5-MeO DMT. Um, I'm sure you heard of it, Toad Venom. It's yep. very like ego dissolving experiences. And the way that I feel like it, like I definitely feel like there was like, it was a mystical experience, right? It was just a mystical experience. Like I, I recognize that in retrospect. But there was definitely a shift. There was definitely like a before and after. There was definitely a no going back. Like after that, it was like, there's no going back. And there was like, I remember the first day, like just going to the gym and I felt like I was in the matrix. I'm just like, this is, this is so fake. This looks so fake. And it, it was just, you know, but, but to me, like the conditioning, the mind identification, the still, the sense of separation is still there. Um, you know, I, I went through Ingram's work and like the way I mapped it was the way he explains the arising and the passing away. I don't know if you've read his book or went through like the stages, how he maps them. But like, to me, that was the arising and passing away. I'm like, okay, it's this big experience. It's like this crazy thing. There might be the sense of not going back, but it isn't, but it is an awakening and it isn't stream entry, you know, but then it's like some of the things you say, like, it does feel like, there's like a significant shift. It does feel like I'm way more aware of the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. I don't know. You know, I can't go back, so I don't really remember how I felt. There was. There's always been suffering, but I. I felt like I became more cognizant of my suffering and of suffering in the world. Like it felt like the the one thing I would say it's like life became like way more painful, mm-hmm. but also way more beautiful. Like there was like a huge like the spectrum of like how I feel and like, it just like widened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. That's just, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't really matter. Like to me, the way I, I look at awakening, it's like, it's like, if you're not suffering no more and you're like able to serve fully where you're not like, I got to take care of myself. I feel bad. Like, I don't feel good. Like, you know, like that to me is the way I look at it. That's why I like the, the awakening liberation. I just put them together. Like I always put them together. So then when you, presented it this way it was just like very different and then it made me think like what's going on in my experience like I'm wondering like are there people that are awakened and don't know they're awakened um there I've met a few people who have had an awakening um who especially if it's distant they definitely know something shifted something happened but because of the place you find yourself post-awakening you're more and more disinclined to label yourself anything often because it doesn't make things don't stick like that. Now, some people are, some people will say I had this insight, then I had this one. Like it's a collection of experiences. That's fine. That's the way they process. But uh, of many people, it just doesn't make sense to even talk that way. And I was one of them. Like I, for years, I just would, I mean, I knew damn well that I saw reality and experienced it different 
than, than I think most people did, but I also knew there was no reason for me to say that or talk about it or not that anyone was having a wrong experience. It just didn't matter. Um, but, but yeah, so I've met a few people who've had shifts that I would consider a true shift in identity and they kind of discount it. But here's the thing. Um, this is again, paradoxical. My chapter on paradox kind of goes into a lot of detail about this because the deeper realization goes, the more paradoxical everything becomes. And, it, and paradox is wonderful. It's just great because reality is paradoxical. Um, but uh, it is paradoxical to say this, but it's true that although I would say there are in the relative events called awakening and non-dual realization and even no self-realization, liberation, um, when I talk with people, I always tell them, don't worry about it. Don't, don't, don't think of it. Don't, don't worry about the event. You don't need to make it into an event. It's not a goal. I only work in the moment. When I'm working with someone uh, directly, I tell them, don't worry about it. I don't see you as having had an awakening or not, or liberated or not. I can't see reality divided up that way. It's not even, it's just not divided up like that. So it, whatever's happening is just happening. And out of this conversation, shifts can happen. And that's great, you know, and, and that's what, what, what just goes down. But um, it doesn't actually matter. Like when I'm working with, say, a given individual, especially after awakening, they tend to move all over the map. Like they'll be, they'll almost feel mind identified. And then they're, so they feel like quite empty and liberated. And then they feel like, you know, they're working with the dualistic constructs of the mind, but I can just flow with wherever they are. And that's fine. That's what we do. We just kind of, it's like a dance, you know? So it doesn't actually matter what happened in the past or future because there is no past and future and reality is not in the past and future. So whatever, it doesn't even matter, honestly. Um, but the way you describe it, yeah, that's kind of like the post-awakening thing. And like I said, some people, it's a huge deal, huge, they, they'll, you know, put a lot of labels on what happened and talk about it endlessly. Other people are like, no, there was something that just definitely changed and it, it didn't go back. Um, but yeah, I'm still a person. I still feel like a person. I still feel like I'm an object, you know, like I feel like I'm walking through three-dimensional space and there's objects over there and I'm over here. I can't pretend that I don't see it that way. Um, and I still feel suffering sometimes. Uh, and yet there's, there's actually a tremendous amount of fluctuation, right? Where sometimes it feels super contracted and like, who the hell, what is going on? Maybe this is all nonsense, like massive doubt. Other times it's just free. It's like flow state freedom. There's nothing to even think about. There's nothing to concern myself with. There's nothing to orient toward. It's just peace. It's just, you know, beautiful. And, um, that's very typical of after awakening is like that. It's kind of like a roller coaster ride. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I do point out that there's kind of those phases. There's pre-awakening, there's post-awakening, and then liberation is a whole other ballgame. And I think the majority of people who go through awakening maybe don't go through all those other experiential insights um, uh, all the time, but probably because they don't have good pointing. That's my guess. So that's why I, I really, that's why I wrote the book. That's why I was really particular about how I worded everything. And, and, um, I really, because I know if someone has had an awakening, there's no reason they can't, um, see through these other perceptual barriers. But the weird thing is post awakening, it's like, they're so subtle, you know, those, those, these perceptual things are so subtle and they're so fleeting and the mind is tricky. You know, the thoughts are still there and they can be confusing. It's kind of like a house of mirrors. Right. Um, so, so it's like, where do you actually look? But it turns out it's not that hard to find where to look and how to look. Um, it's just a matter of being willing to see subtleties more than, and, and stay out of your mind. You know, the cognitive, that, that's the danger with talking about maps and stages is it's so easy to turn that into a mental map 
and unbeknownst to ourselves, use that mental map to actually avoid presence right now. Why would we want to avoid presence? Well, here's the really weird thing. Presence is peaceful and it's, um, it's presence is dissolution and it's no self, but presence is also contraction. Presence has, an, presence has infinite flavors to it. It, it. It's not bound to be only pleasurable. That's what we miss. And there's a, an assumption we, we make early in life, of course we do, and, and our mind always makes it, the thoughts always make it, and that is, I'm always trying to feel better and always trying to avoid feeling worse. Um, but that really, we have to look really closely at that specifically after awakening. Um, and there are parts, there are some insights that um, interestingly are the, but there's one insight specifically that interestingly is the one that probably reduces suffering the most, personal suffering the most. Uh, and that's, that's the shift into equanimity. Um, but what's interesting about it is the way you, the way you investigate it is very counterintuitive. It's not a deep Samadhi type investigation. It's not a meditative thing. It's actually down and dirty life. It's like, look at what actually causes you, what triggers you in life the most. And you, and you got to like, just be honest with yourself. Be like, what triggers me? Is it my relationship with my loved ones? Is it uh, work, my boss, is it the government, whatever it is, you know, look at those things that really trigger you and start to feel into the cognitive distortion that comes up that says this. It says, this is how reality is right now. It's just like this. This is the way it is just like it's the way it sounds, the way it feels, the way it looks. This is what's actually happening. And this is what my mind says should be happening. Right. And that little mistake, it's not a mistake. It's just the way our minds operate, but, but the buy-in we have, it, it leads to a sense of doership. It leads to a sense of the one who has agency that can make me feel better. That can fix the problem in my life. It perpetuates that through thought. And so when we actually follow, you follow the breadcrumbs like backwards to where they started. And you'll find that you'll find this place where you realize, oh my God, whenever, whenever I look at life exactly how it is. And I tell myself that's how it is. Yeah, sure. But that's not how it should be. That's not, I can make it different than it is like, no, you can't, you can't make what's happening right now, different than what's happening right now. You'll never, ever, ever be able to do that. And yet through the magic of thought, we really kind of convince ourselves we can, that's the root of suffering. And so, as I said, it's counterintuitive, this particular insight, because you actually have to go back into discomfort. You go in the moment you, you when you're doing this and you're really putting yourself like over the coals on this, you'll, you'll realize like, Oh my God, I've been doing this for years. I've been convincing myself that what's actually happening is not happening, or I can make it not happen, or I can make it less happening when I, I know damn well I can't. And, and to realize that it causes a little bit of discomfort. It's kind of like if you could bottle human discomfort into a jar and, and then drink a drink of it, it's, it's kind of like raw discomfort. It's not torture, but it's not comfortable. It's a it's, it's place we don't want to be. And to, the willingness to actually be there while doing this kind of good inquiry of noticing, oh, this is how it is. And this is how I think it could be. And then this little flip can happen where all of a sudden you realize like, oh my God, I've been looking at the world as how it could be moment to moment, most of the time, instead of how it actually is. No wonder I'm suffering. Yeah. So being willing to go back and look at this kind of stuff. But again, when you've had mystical experiences and you've went through awakening and all this, and, you, and everyone that talks about meditation and awakening talks about not having suffering, this is the last place you'd think to look, but it's the place you have to look. <laughs>
for to to really get under the that that um that fundamental mistake that makes it so that we don't recognize equanimity is actually always here. Does that make sense? For sure. So can you explain how you explain in your book what a thought is and expand on the reflective nature of thoughts? I thought that was sure. that part was really fascinating. Yeah, it's very interesting. Thoughts are a fascinating phenomenon. Um, in that, as I mentioned in the book somewhere, you know, if you think about it, no one in the world had a parent set them down at like seven years old and say, listen, by the time you're 20, your constant companion in life, there's going to be someone standing next to you all the time, talking in your ear, telling you what you think, what you believe, telling you who you are and who you're not, telling you what you're afraid of. They're going to be there all the time. So I want to warn you. It, you're going to listen to this person more than you listen to your lover, more than you listen to your boss. It is going to be there all the time chattering away at you. It's called thoughts. No one ever tells us that's going to happen, right? Isn't that weird? And yet it is true. How often do people talk about thoughts? Not really that often. It's, it's like this secret we keep where we're always engaging our inner world, but then we, we kind of engage the outer world with some kind of persona that's a little fake, right? No wonder we're fucking, you know, like no wonder we're suffering. Like we're so, you know, um, inauthentic in a certain way. So thoughts are so fascinating because they're, they're so prevalent in everyone's experience. And yet it's this like thing we hide away a little bit. Right. Um, so anyway, starting, starting from there, um, you know, as, as realization progresses, especially after that first big shift, it's changes a lot as, as far as our understanding of thought. Right. So as realization progresses, our understanding and experience of thought evolves a lot. And even, even after liberation, it, it's very interesting how it evolves. It, it, it gets to a place that's so hard to talk about with thoughts. But um, initially, uh, what I would say, if somebody wants to just look and see what a thought is, I would say start by um, uh, reminding yourself in the moment that you're looking into what a thought is right now remind yourself that there's actually no past or future in this moment, right? In this, in this exact moment, the only way there could be a past and future, well, I can't make one happen, but I can think of, I can imagine one, right? So let's look right in this moment and see what's actually here then, right? If it's not a past and future, which are only thought-based, there's only what's happening. Well, there's only five senses. There's sensation, there's sound, the visual experience or smell and taste, right? That's, that's clearly here. And there's some other thing going on, this chattering going on, or this self-reflection, or this sense of me, or if, you know, from an Advaita standpoint, it might be this, the, the pure sense of I am, or even where that I am is emanating from, that sense of I is emanating from. So just an experience of, let's say, consciousness, thought, consciousness, et cetera. So you, you can actually investigate directly what a thought is empirically for yourself um, if you just sit for a moment and just say, okay, I just want to notice the next thought that comes, right? And the thought is, it's not the sensations, it's not the sounds, it's not the visual experience, the smell or taste, it's just whatever else comes that's not those. And you might notice, oh, I just saw an image of myself, I don't know, eating breakfast in my mind, right? And then you just investigate, well, what's that made out of? You know, what, what is it? Like, how could I explain that to someone who's never had a thought? Like there is anyone, but if you were to explain what a thought is to someone who's never had a thought, you'd say, okay, 
So you see how you're sitting in this room here? Yes, you can see, you know, me and you see the room. Yeah, I see the room, you know, and, and um, you know, you hear things and so forth. Yeah, okay, yeah. Now imagine that you can actually see something like this, but it's not happening right here, but you can, it can, you can see it like on a movie screen inside your head. And they'd say, what? You'd say, yeah, that's what a thought is. You can actually experience what seems like the senses, but it's not the senses as they're appearing right now. It's kind of like the senses as they appeared, maybe what seems like a moment ago or, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so in that empirical way, you can look into it and see that the thoughts are ultimately a reflection of the senses, right? What is the thought made out of? Um, there's a, a recently characterized phenomenon called aphantasia. Have you heard of this? I, I feel like I heard that, but I'm yeah. blanking on what that is. Well, aphantasia means some people um, don't, they can't, they can't actually make a mental visual image in their mind. At okay. All. Yeah. Like yeah. They literally can't yeah. do it. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting about this is because of the nature of human communication, the, the, we, we, we didn't even know this was happening for a long time, including the people who have it. So when I uh, heard about this, I started watching some documentaries and, or uh, some sort of lectures by neurologists who study it and, and talk to people who have it. And one of them said he, he's found that about one out of 100 people have visual aphantasia. So I was like, well, I can probably find one then if, if one out of 100. So I went one day, I was at work and I started asking everybody to imagine an apple. And then I, you know, I kind of went through the thing. And I found two different people in one day who literally could, they don't have an ability to imagine anything visually. So once I found them, I was like, you know, asking all kinds of questions. I'm like, okay, well, what do you, what did you think they were talking about? Like in first grade when the teacher said, okay, everyone imagine something. And they said, I never really knew what they were talking about. I thought they meant imagine like the word, the concept, like the, the verbal concept apple. So I, and, and so one of the two people I talked to was very interesting. I, I told her, I said, I said, would it surprise you to know people? I can actually visualize that. I can like literally see it in their mind. Like they see it in front of their eyes. And she was like, is that really true? Do people really see things in their mind? And I said, people see things in their mind that look more real than what's right in front of their eyes. A lot of times, you know? Um, so, but that's a good example of how a thought, a visual thought, an image is really just a reflection of a sense, right? Just, and, and so then the other very common part of thought is, is narrative, right? The self-narrative, self-talk, which apparently some other people with aphantasia have a minimal amount of that or none at all. They don't have an internal dialogue, um, they say. Uh, so are they, are they suffering? It seems like I, they're like free of thoughts. <laughs> you know what's interesting? Here's something that's really interesting about that. Specifically to the image one, um, this neurologist who uh, had interviewed many people with this, this thing, this disorder, or maybe it's not even a disorder really, but uh, he asks them one question and they universally say that it's true of them. And he says, do you notice it's easy for you to move on? Like if you break up with someone and they, they all say, oh, absolutely. It's, I just don't think about them. I'm not, I don't have an image of them, so I don't grieve. One guy even said, my mother passed away and he said it was very sad while I was going through it with my sisters and whatever. He said, but after that, it was gone. Like I didn't, I don't grieve her until I talk to my sisters and I feel their grief sort of by, you know, whatever. And he said, what I noticed though, is like, if I look at a picture of her, I feel a lot of grief. Uh, he said, but I don't look at a picture of her. He said, I know, I know I love her still. Uh, and, and I know she's not here, but I don't feel like grief, you know? So um, people who have visual aphantasia, apparently they really don't uh, hold on to, 
uh, like, you know, lost loved ones or broken up relationships and, and that sort of thing, nearly as much as people who do have the majority of people who have this mental image um, in their minds. But it kind of shows you that we're actually grieving something that's not there in a sense, right? It's like we're, we're taking what we're imagining to be, in a sense, almost more real than what's right in front of our eyes, right? And so this gets, you know, as we go deeper in realization, this gets to the heart of what identification is actually all about, what identity is even all, all about. Uh, because when we start to see, oh, I'm not the thoughts, I'm not the images, there's not a whole lot going on anymore. When, it, when we're not looking at the reflections in the mind and you're only looking at what's right in front of your face, if you're really honest with yourself, there aren't, there aren't labels there because those are memories. There isn't concept there because the concepts about objects are memories, they're learned. It's, it starts looking very different actually. Separation, boundaries, all these things are learned. They're, they're ultimately thoughts, but they become subtle thoughts. They become thoughts on which other thoughts are built. And that's the sort of quote unquote conceptual thoughts. Um, where you could say, well, it's not really a visual image. It's not really a, a, a dialogue, but if you unpack it, it ultimately is. It's, you know, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a reflection of reflections. So in the book, I described that, that thoughts are a reflection of uh, the visual sense, a reflection of the auditory sense, which narrative and that sort of thing. Um, and you, you can sort of, you can imagine sensations, you know, these things can happen and, and sometimes they're there more prominently for some people, but generally like smell and taste, you don't usually imagine them too much, except maybe right before you're ready to eat and so forth. But the majority of our internal experience is the auditory and visual uh, soundscape that, that is reflected. However, as thought becomes more complex, and as I described in the book, it becomes very complex very early in life. By the time you're four years old, you know how to manipulate other people because you know they have an inner world and you know how to manipulate their inner world. You know you can change the visual experience and the, and the belief experience other people are having in their mind to your advantage at four years old, called theory of mind, right? We have brain centers that do this. So thought becomes very complex very early. And, and what I would describe as what makes thought actually very complex, um, not very, but what makes thought become increasingly complex is that thoughts cannot, can reflect all of the five senses, let's say, but they can actually also reflect other thoughts. So consciousness has this ability to self-reflect um, into a series of thoughts. And by the time we're in our early 20s, that's the world we live in. We live in a, a house of mirrors of thoughts reflecting thoughts. However, we've become identified with them. And that's that place that can become exquisitely uncomfortable for people and why they take up these practices and, and so forth. So yeah, that's ultimately what it is. I think thoughts are reflective in nature and the clearer it becomes what thought and consciousness actually is, what the substance of consciousness is and how it functions, it becomes very obvious that it has a reflective nature to it, but it doesn't have to be experienced in a reflective way. You can actually learn to experience consciousness as non-reflective knowingness. It might be called like um, consciousness Rigpa or something. I don't know Zochen very well, but, um, but I just call it unbound consciousness or non-polarized consciousness where there's no subject object experience in consciousness. It's just like pure knowing or the pure light of knowing shining only on itself, let's say. Um, so yeah. So consciousness is a fascinating thing where it can form sense of, it can form a sense of self, the thinker and the objects of thought very easily. And it can even become identified in that through momentum, but it can also back out of all that, you know, take the backward step into just that pure sense of knowingness with no thought at all. Yeah. Um, the, that part, that part of your book really resonated. I also like 
you had it was like a litmus test to see if something's a thought like can you write it down if you could write it down then it's a thought and then you know you you were talking about the reflective thing and and then unbound consciousness and i i was just seeing that in in my experience and it was like there was like a shift in that and that's i really like that part of the book um something else you said um that also has been coming up for me is the fact that we don't teach kids about thoughts I have two young, young kids. And, and I was thinking about this this week, probably because I was like going through your book, reading it. And I'm just like, like, how do I how do you explain this to my son? Like, listen, this is what happens. Your brain is just going to be chattering. And like, you don't have to identify with that. And like, you don't have to believe like, ha- like 99% of the time, like whatever's there is just like, it's nothing. It's just noise. Mm-hmm. So like, that I, I feel like that's so important. Like, like, learning about thoughts and emotions like that's the most important thing we should learn about yet we they don't teach that in school and like most people don't even learn that as adults i totally Uh, agree with you um can you explain what is spiritual materialism and whether it's an inevitable part of walking the path or the awakening process yeah i think it is i think it is sort of inevitable because um seeking seeking to various degrees will go on for quite some time as the spiritual unfolding occurs it it may not go on in a in a really gross way after awakening like it may calm down tremendously but the sense of trying to make ourselves feel better trying to move toward a more desirable or enjoyable experience and away from a less desirable or enjoyable experience that's going to go on in the mind and this stuff's a bit tricky to talk about because I really want to make a distinction between the mind and and the body from a conventional standpoint. The body is always going to prefer one flavor of tea over another, let's say, or it's going to prefer um, eating something that it enjoys versus physical pain. That's that's not actually what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where identity comes into play. And identity comes into play, uh, again, very early in life, and it's very deeply rooted in the way we process. um, And it's most fundamental movement really is trying to make itself feel better, trying to, um, uh, again, move towards something desirable and away from something not so desirable. Well, the most desire, the most enjoyable thing that the ego ever gets a hold of is a spiritual experience, (laughs) a mystical experience and an awakening, not the core of what actually happens. Like at the very core of presence, let's say, doesn't really have a core, but at the very core of presence, There's actually no one standing apart from it going, oh, this is so cool. And how do I reproduce it? It's actually not like that. But but the as long as there's a remnants of ego left, it's going to come in and put its stamp on it and go, oh, boom. First of all, I did that. I did something to get that to happen. And second of all, uh, I could recreate it. Let's let's figure out how to do that. That's you could call that spiritual materialism. Ultimately, part of us is going to want to chase pleasurable experiences for a while. Now, what's interesting is I find um, sometimes I say like people will ask me how I teach or something, and I don't really have a style or a way that I teach. Well, I probably do, but I don't know what it is, but I can tell you, let's say subjectively, it's something like, I really just feel fixations. Like if somebody's working directly with me and we're going through this process and they're going through whatever they're going through, what I usually feel is fixation because reality doesn't fixate. And I feel, and it, and it can fix, it can be any kind of fixation. It can fixate this way, that way, in the masculine, in the feminine, it can fixate in the mentality, in the mind, in, in concepts. It can fixate in even in the non-conceptual. So, so the fixation tendency of 
the let's say the separate self for, for lack of a better way of describing it um goes on for for a while until it completely stops and that to me it's kind of like the signature of liberation experientially um but it gets subtler and subtler and subtler that's the key is to, to be willing to be open to subtler and subtler movements of fixation and not uh fight them but inquire into what is the perception there what's going on you know that sort of thing so um as fixations get subtler uh they get a little they get more obscured but at the same time they the um undermining of a fixation uh has a, has a almost a, in a sense a more of a profound effect more the clarity just keeps deepening and deepening and it's amazing um but every time that happens to a certain point, up to a point, every time that happens, there's a little bit of a, let's, I'll just call it an egoic reflex that goes, ooh, that was cool. <laughs> that was a great insight. You know, that, it, it just happens, right? It's, it's the way our minds are sort of wired and it wants to hold on to it somehow, wants to hold on. So at some point, it just clicks that as these realizations get subtler, as the, the, as we orient more and more to non-fixation, uh, to impermanence uh, and so forth, um, we trust that the dissolution itself, the releasing activity itself is sort of innate to reality. Reality is always releasing and never holds anything. Uh, and then it, it, I don't know, like almost like a critical mass hits where it's like, oh, it's obvious, it's self-perpetuating. And that you don't need me to point anymore. You don't need anything, you know, in one sense, everything is pointing to it. Everything is pointing to dissolution. Everything is pointing to impermanence right here, right now in crystal clear intimacy. And it's just so beautiful. Um, it, it doesn't mean that it's over. It doesn't mean that the, the, the awakening is over or the, the process is over in the relative sense in a body mind, it's always going to deepen and, and, but it carries itself inward from then on, which is beautiful. It's like realization is now approached from a place of spontaneity, complete and true spontaneity, instead of a place of doership as the agent, as the spiritual person, as the whatever. And that's when spiritual materialism is like, you, you just see through it. You just see, Oh, okay. That was just the way the mind was moving. You know, it was just trying to collect experiences. Now um, I will say that as I mentioned with the fixation thing, some people do fixate pretty strongly this way. Some people really try to collect experiences for whatever reason. It's not bad or, you know, there's different, yeah. It's like, I want to, you know, I want this experience. And, and then and we tend to like talk about those experiences, like a currency of telling your friends about how, you know, this one and that one. And um, um, fine, you know, it's like, be kind to yourself and realize that's human nature. Of course we want to feel good. Um, but there's something that, feels better than good and that's 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 just complete mystery it's a mystery it's it's a it's a it's a non-holding non-fixation it's a it's indeterminacy indeterminacy itself so absolutely liberating and freeing um and it can't hold on it doesn't hold on to any experience because then it, it has to be ready for the next experience is one way of saying it but it, it it's it's just a, a willingness to just live in complete aliveness and yeah that makes sense yeah uh i i feel like i've been going through uh, the spiritual materialism like like after i had the toad experiences like i couldn't stop talking about it for two years like any person i met or anybody else, like that would be the main kind of thing i wanted to speak about 
until it just kind of burned itself out. And I just started seeing like, okay, like, why are you speaking about this? Why are you bringing, like, Mm -hmm. it it just burned itself out. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you kind of, you just see kind of like these patterns and they, they become more evident. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, it's just fascinating how the ego just like, it will attach to anything. Like it becomes a spiritual ego and it's like more subtle and more refined. And it's like, um, I think there was a couple of things you said, like as insight progresses, it becomes less spiritual. Like it, the whole experience of awakening, it becomes less spiritual and there becomes less of a sense of specialness. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like the specialness is that's the sense of self. Like it, it happened to me. I'm somehow more special than everybody else. And then like, you just, you just start seeing like how that's just nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And, a lot uh, of this comes down to psychological stuff because we, you know, of course we all want to be special in a sense. Yeah. right as as i watch it like with with even the dogs you know they they have they feel jealousy when you give one dog attention the other one wants to come up and saying they feel jealousy is projecting human stuff onto them but they they have they act that way right they 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 vie for attention from the the person who feeds them or whatever so there's some developmental stage in our life in our life where it's important that we are noticed by the one we have a primary bond with and those sorts of things but the way consciousness works it just echoes things infinitely into adulthood where they're just not even relevant anymore but it's interesting. The specialness thing is true. And one thing I'll sometimes say about specialness is specialness is like a, a double-edged sword because in one sense you want to be special, but in another sense, being special is separate from everything. And that's suffering. You know, um, the other thing I wanted to say is um, from what you just reflecting on what you just said was that a lot of times you can unpack these things a little bit and look for like psychological mechanisms that are just very human and simple. Like, um, comparing experiences with, I have no idea if this is your experience at all, but comparing experiences with others, sometimes in people that do it a lot, or in, even in communities that tend to do it, I've seen, um, it, I, I sense, I sense a, like a, um, like a competition, a competitiveness that's like repressed. Like they don't see that they're being competitive, but they kind of maybe are, or just wanting to fit in a, a sense of, you know, wanting to fit in, get wanting to get approval. It's a lot of stuff comes down to validation. You know, we want validation and, and that's wired into us that um, survival uh, has to do with being with acceptance, you know, right in, in the world we live in today, if, if, if you don't get validation, you're probably not going to starve. But if you believe in evolution and, you know, we evolved in small bands of primates and so forth to, to lose validation to a certain degree could mean death. If you're like ostracized from the group, you don't have, you don't have protection, you know? So um, it is sort of wired into us as a survival mechanism to want to fit in and need validation. So you don't have to make any of that wrong. Um, if, if you find the stuff going on, it's just a matter of just looking in and going, oh, okay. Oh, I see. I, I, that's why that's happening. Okay. And yet at the same time that's happening, the clarity is still here, right? It's when we don't see it and it's a hidden place that it, it, it has a polarity to it and it keeps us kind of ping pong balling. But when we see it clearly for what it is, you can just be fully human and realize that's the relative world, you know, and, and, and it lines up all of a sudden, it just it like lines up with the absolute world. And it's like, boom, that's it. Nothing to fix. Um, so. Is meditation necessary for awakening? Why is it that some people can spend 20 to 30 years meditating and not wake up? Uh, I, I noticed that like your approach is so like you speak about practicing and like technique and these kind of things, but it, it seems like you're so into the natural flow. Like it's not about being regimented, like having this tight schedule. Um, that was kind of like refreshing to me coming from 
being more of like, I have to meditate two hours a day. I have to, I can't miss a meditation. Uh, you know, coming from reading Chol Dasa's The Mind Illuminated and Daniel Ingram's Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. And it's like very much about maps and, and like, and the, these are the five hindrances and which one of them is popping up and like just super technical and why, and then your approach is just so natural. So like maybe you could expand on your approach to meditation and, and is it necessary for awakening and, mm -hmm. and sure. why it doesn't always work? Yeah. I love that question. So um, one thing uh, I, I felt to say at the outset is um, that um, there are times when I might recommend to somebody that they, they're more regimented about practice, meditation, inquiry. What's interesting about what you just said is like, um, it, again, so many paradoxes in this stuff and the ego loves to co-opt everything. So um, the, the person who's probably the most obsessed with regiment being regimented and mapping and all that sort of thing. Well, there are a lot, I'm not, not you, but I mean, like there are a lot of people like that, but the, that type of psychological makeup, those are the ones I'm going to point in the other direction. I'm going to point them more to the, 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 the naturalness, the, the, let's say the, even the feminine aspect, the, the willingness instead of the will as Adi Shanti might say it. Um, on the other hand, uh, you have to have some intention to actually recognize that you're, you're, you're suffering and, and be willing to do something and work. Right. So, so a lot of this stuff again, comes to the middle way. What's interesting though, is about meditation specifically is, um, I'm personally not against it at all. I love to meditate and I do meditate. Um, if anything, I was, I was of the makeup to believe that practicing hard equals being realized. Like, and the more you practice, you know, I, I would even, this is many years ago, but I would look at like, I don't know, Dogen or these Zen masters. I mean, like they must've meditated like eight hours a day for 70 years or something, right? Like it just, it's just the way the masculine mind's hooked up, right? The harder you work, the more you get, the more, you know, but I think I probably put it in my book somewhere. Like if, if just ex exerting yourself in extreme and painful ways made you enlightened, then every ultra marathoner would be enlightened, but they're not. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, practice. And, so meditation specifically does not equal awakening. Um, and I know that, and it's, it's not an opinion. I know it from experience because I've seen people wake up very quickly who actually don't like to meditate at all, but they inquire like, crazy. Like uh, I can think of a couple people and they were all about inquiry. They were all about awakening and, and seeing through the illusion of, of separation and all that, but they didn't care to meditate at all. So there you go. Um, the majority of people I work with definitely meditate and have a meditation practice and that sort of thing. But on the other end of the spectrum, as you mentioned, there are people who meditate for years and years and years and they don't wake up. So awakening really is about inten intention. It really is. You have to be willing. Well, you have to care that they're, that, that, that there's a way out of suffering, you know, um, you have to be willing to go through what you're going to have to go through for this process to, to evolve. And I, everyone I know who's deeply realized, everyone I know personally, uh, who's deeply realized has gone through a, a lot of um, emotional pain. It's, it's not an easy thing to go through at, at times, but, it, but a willingness to go through that, even though you can't know exactly what that's going to mean or how it's going to unfold, but a willingness is key. If, if your whole practice is about trying to feel good and that's really all it's about, that, that, that's probably not the person who's going to necessarily wake up fastest. Someone who's like, I don't care what I feel, what I go through, what I see. I don't care what a repressed emotion comes. I want to see the truth, period. I want to see the living truth because I believe there is some, and probably the most important thing is, and I believe that I'm, I don't already know it, right? I believe whatever beliefs I have, they may be 
suspect. They may be totally wrong. They may be making me suffer. That's, that's someone who's wired to wake up, you know? So, um, I generally would recommend meditation. Of course it calms the mind, calms the body for sure. But, um, don't convince yourself that that's the only thing that require is required to wake up. I think you have to be sort of committed to living truth. So to me, I, I kind of feel like self-inquiry is a type of meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you still need some kind of practice, right? Cause self-inquiry, you, you could be doing it while you're washing the dishes or while you're doing relative tasks. Yeah. But it's the, it's the fact that you're like attentively watching. Mm-hmm. So like, like how, how is self-inquiry different than meditation? That's a great question. You absolutely can do self-inquiry while you meditate. Um, if I said self-inquiry, I'll back up and just say, there's a broader term I use, in, which is inquiry. And it's not always self-inquiry. Yeah. Um, at first, especially if you're working on that first shift, self-inquiry is what I would point to. It's one of the things I, I would recommend if it, if it resonates with somebody. There's other ways to go about it, but that is self-inquiry into the nature of self. Um, and a very good way of understanding that is just read Ramana Maharishi's book. He describes it very clearly what he's talking about. And, and um, it's, it's quite simple, um, but you kind of have to be uh, ruthless with it. You have to really care about the answer and keep digging in. Um, and that, that really can, can get someone across uh, through that first gate, that first barrier. Beyond that, there's other types of inquiry that aren't self-inquiry necessarily. Once, especially once you really see in, you really have the insight that you're not going to find a separate self anywhere. You're just not going to find it, you know, and you know, you're not going to find it and it lose it. You lose some interest in, in looking for it in a sense, then self-inquiry is not really that powerful. I don't think. Um, but again, from the standpoint of like Neo-Advaita, uh, Ramana Maharishi, Nisargadatta, they would say it is still, it's still valuable to just rest in the sense of I am. It's fine. Um, that's a, that's one way to go. Uh, but uh, I would, point people to inquire into different aspects of what seemed to formulate itself in the first place. So separation, you know, the equanimity stuff. So there's different ways to inquire that are not self-inquiry. So I just want to clarify that first. Um, When you're working with that first shift and you really are absorbing yourself into self-inquiry, it does help to do it during meditation, really, because you can get into a a deep absorption, like, you know, samadhi with it where the mind gets very, very quiet and the thoughts are starting to space out. And that's where magic happens. Um, after that, uh, you can do inquiry during meditation as part of your meditative practice, for sure. It's fine. Uh, but, uh, but other inquiries, you, you can literally do walking around. You can do sitting in a chair. Um, and many people, uh, examples that are coming to mind of people I know who made that non-dual shift did it wide awake. Uh, sitting there, staring at a wall, looking at a cup, sitting on a plane, looking at a seat. Um, I've heard all these things and, or just walking around, riding your bike. Uh, I try not to recommend people do this while driving, but probably could happen then too. I actually do know somebody who worked on it while they're driving. Um, so, so yeah, the, 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 diff- the later inquiries, once you've had a, again, a, a shift or some insight, you start to recognize presence and sort of absorption can kind of also happen when you're wide awake. You don't have to be in a deep meditative state. This is once you've taken practice off the mat, right? When you realize it's not a compartmentalized thing I do. Spirituality isn't my little thing I do one hour a day or two hours a day. It's kind of a responsibility like all day long in a sense. Now, you don't want to beat yourself up about that because the mind's still going to get a hold of you here and there and you're not going to be able to focus 24-7. But uh, you certainly can start to do these practices wide awake, taking care of business. Um, and there's a, there's a sort of shift that starts to happen where they become enjoyable. You do it out of true curiosity. 
you know, like truly curious, well, what is a boundary? How do I know that there's a boundary anywhere? How do I know there's a subject experiencing an object? Where, what am I taking reference from, right? So, um, so is inquiry a practice? Sure, but it's really a practice from the standpoint of a practicer. Once the practicer starts to dissolve, what I like to say is if you're doing inquiry properly, if someone's pointed you to do it inquiry properly, or you've learned by your own instinct to do it properly, you'll notice that as, as identity structures fall away, you are already doing something that's already always happening anyway. So I could say inquiry is always happening, but it's not a, it's not a, it's not a specific question. It doesn't need a specific answer, but it's always looking. I'm always looking. I'm always, there's a curiosity and a fascination with reality that's just ongoing all the time. So done properly, inquiry just sort of coalesces into this place that I described earlier where realization just continues to carry itself inward and onward spontaneously. It's the spontaneity, the curiosity, the fascination, and the non-dual, non-formless nature of reality are all the same thing. Does that make sense? So, so inquiry, is it a practice? Sure, it's a practice until it's not, until it's just absolutely, what else, what is there to do, but enjoy this. There's <laughs> not even an enjoyer though, right? So again, paradox. Can you there speak? Are, there, are, there are meditative practices that I might recommend that are not specifically inquiry too, for sure. They just, just calm the mind, calm the body, you know, um, natural meditation, which Chikantaza, if you're a Zen person. Um, uh, resting in pure consciousness, but that's also, you could probably say resting in the sense of I am. Um, but there, there are meditative practices also, you know, of course you, you can use a mantra, you know, uh, body scanning, whatever, um, that are not directly inquiry, inquiry, I suppose. But anyway, I wanted to point that out as well. Yeah. Going through your book definitely, um, made me look at meditation a lot less rigidly, which is very helpful, um, because, uh, one of my kids is almost two and a half. The other one is seven months. And uh, it's becoming more harder to have a longer like regimented practice. So it's like, I'm like, I got to practice right now changing this diaper. <laughs> like, so like your approach is just, I, you know, I tend to be very structured. I like structure. I like discipline. I like routine. So like, I see that it's helpful for me to lean into like the perspective. I feel you show a lot. Um, can you speak about, this is another interesting part. Um, I'm, this is fascinating to me. Can you speak about beliefs, how they work, where they come from, and the role they play in the awakening process? Sure. Yeah, uh, so um, I, I could almost say, like, if, if there's one thing anyone could do to just wake themselves up, and, and I, people I have sort of come in contact with or maybe seen videos of that sort of did it on their own in a way uh, or just figured it out, um, or maybe intuited it, it's what they really are doing is they're, they're inquiring into and undermining beliefs. And like, you know, going back to like Ramana Maharishi, you're, what he's doing is telling you to undermine, to inquire into and undermining the most fundamental belief out of which all beliefs grow, basically the sense of being a self. But, um, but it's really true that what it all comes down to as far as what keeps us in this dividing thought process that makes us just feel like, we're separate from things. Things are separate. There's decisions to be made. There's stress. There's struggle. There's problems to fix. There's a past. There's a future. It all comes down to beliefs, ultimately. Um, and what I've noticed is when we're able to uh, intelligently um, or, uh, or in a practical way inquire into a belief, 
until we sort of dissolve that belief or relax that belief. It's like perspective just suddenly um, in, increases in a way. It's like we can almost see two directions at once, maybe something like that um, about a certain subject or in a certain context. And the more that happens, the more you start to experience this um, clarity is the word I use for it, but it's this, it's this exquisite, like knowing that wherever I look, I'm putting it in a relative sense, but like wherever I look, there's just more clarity. Like there's nothing to solve. The clarity just keeps clarifying itself again and again and again. Whereas the mind has a diff the most the opposite feel. Like the more I think, the more I'm in a box. The more I think, the more divided everything seems and feels and the more struggle seems to happen. And the more I struggle, the more I'm struggling against struggle and the more struggle I feel. And, you know, um, but, but reality seems to almost be the opposite way where it's just like, oh my gosh, it's just opening to itself more and more and clearer and clearer and clearer. That's what it feels like to, to, to disentangle identity from belief um, until, there's, until the final belief is that there is identity at all. And that one's a little trickier to get under because there's not much left to do it. There's no identity to, to oppose it in a sense, but it, so it tends to fall away, I guess, on its own. But um, uh, yeah, so you can inquire into any belief, but I think the most important thing about belief is what I put at the beginning of that chapter and I also put it in the, the kind of cautions chapter at the beginning. And that is something I've just noticed about people, people who have very rigid belief structures and that they actually feel like they have to defend them. And it can be about anything. Often it's about like religion or politics, but it's about self. It's about a lot of things where it's like, there are certain beliefs I hold that are so sacred. I, I will never question them. I'm not even going to look closely at them. I'm I, I just don't want to change them for whatever reason. I don't want to investigate. I, th I find people that do that, um, they may have very good conditions in this life, so they may not suffer too much, but put, in, but, but put in the inevitable situation where they have a trauma, they lose somebody close to them, whatever, they, they really don't adjust well, um, is what I find. Whereas people who are willing to inquire into their beliefs or just look at them as such, like, oh, I actually have this belief that, I don't know, I have to react this way or that way to a certain situation, or I have this belief that my mother did this or whatever. Um, just being willing to inquire into those and look at them objectively as a belief, and then do a little work around it and see, well, where, why did I come up with that? Where did I, what, what am I taking in reference to actually believe that's true right now? Um, an example of this that I find is very freeing for people who have done a lot of spiritual work uh, around this stuff. And um, they often will come up to this place where they're like, okay, there's, there's this way I can experience sort of um, uh, pure consciousness in my mind where I'm not doing any sort of inquiry, but I can also do this like inquiry around this particular thing. Which one should I do? They ask. And I say, first of all, let's look and see, is it actually true that there's someone or something there that has to choose between those, that those are even separate things? And they often can't find any evidence that they're separate things. And the weird thing is there's like an often effect where it just, it just dissolves. And you're like, oh my God, that wasn't even a thing. That was a thought. There was a thought that's like, listen, like the, the ego loves to put a gun to your head and be like, you need to make a decision right now. It's either this or that. And you're like, okay, which one should I choose? Which one should I choose? Total false dichotomy, right? What if there's nothing to choose <laughs> at all? You know? And then all of a sudden practice feels different. It's like, oh, I know the, the relevant thing to look at is right here. And then it just dissolves. And then, and then it's time to meditate. And then I'm meditating and now I'm walking and all of a sudden things are starting to feel very intimate and non-dual and I don't see boundaries, you know? So um, 
beliefs like very fundamental beliefs, like I have this important choice to make right now. And that's what's holding me up. And until I make that choice, I can't get down the road to, to realization or something. Those sorts of sticky beliefs that, that feel very close and intimate and important are often the ones that you get the most release out of investigating, whether it's even there at all, that, that choice or that, that, you know, the belief is that there's a choice right here. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I found a lot of things you wrote in the book um, that reminded me it was very applicable to a relation, relational practice I do called circling. Mm. Uh, I later heard you mention circling during another interview. So it seems like you're familiar and maybe you have experiences with this practice. Um, besides for being a relational or emotional processing practice, do you think circling can serve to facilitate awakening? Also, assuming you've circled in the past, how has that practice impacted you? That's a great question. I don't know a lot about it, but I do have a few friends who uh, know a lot and they, they hold circling groups and so forth, and they're pretty good at it. Um, I've, I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever actually gone to a formal circling group and had it done with me, but um, the, the experience I have with it is this. Uh, well, okay, two things that are kind of different. One is, have you ever seen the movie um, The Work? I don't think I have. Dude, you got to see it, man. It's So it's on Amazon Prime. There's two versions, 2017 and 2019. And they're both very similar. I think one has a little extra in it. It's about um, uh, Folsom Prison in California. And it's a circling group of the inmates. But these guys are so, oh, they're so dialed in. They're so good at it. They actually invite outside people to come in once or twice a year to do a weekend workshop. And the, uh, these guys from the outside who aren't criminals come in with these like lifelong criminal, basically, you know, they're not never getting out of prison, but they're so good at this. And they're so clear. They work them through their own emotional stuff and is probably the most powerful thing I've ever seen. I've watched it probably seven or eight times. Is it a documentary or is it a documentary? Oh, they film it going through it. Yeah. It's so good. Um, So that, that really somewhat turned me on to the power of it, at least done in the right settings and with the right people. Cause you watch that and you're like, wow, okay, that's, there's huge, huge, huge value to this. Um, but uh, so I, I have a friend who has done a lot of circling groups. So on my retreats, which I started doing home retreats a few years ago, a couple of times a year. Uh, and then I recently did one in California. There were more people who were interested than I could put in my house. So we did one of like 30 people. Um, but I've always done semi-silent retreats because I, I, like, uh, I like the silence aspect and you, know, you can get into deep meditation. And I you know, came from a Zen background. Um, but I also like to do relational stuff. Uh, so a few hours a day, like during dinner, and then we, we do like a group interaction thing. I've actually done some stuff with improv. So I do very, very simple improv techniques because improv actually requires you to be present externally, like present with other people and notice what everyone's doing. And you can't go back internal and reflect again, or else you drop the ball in a sense with these improv exercises. So, um, and, and people have always enjoyed it. The last few retreats, I've incorporated some circling that my friend Mark has described to me, uh, and he actually came up with it specifically for the retreat, very simple exercises, but they're really good, actually. They're uh, quite enjoyable. Um, and I never did the thing where I, we never put a person in the middle necessarily. What we do is we just go around and describe an ex- a physical experience we're having right now, non-judgmentally. It can be like, I feel pressure on my butt on the chair. And then the next person says it and the next person. But when you've been meditating for days on end, this, it's so fascinating what happens. Like you, you feel such an, uh, an immediate bond with people because we're actually talking about what we're physically feeling. 
even though there's no story or narrative or emotion around it, it's an actual physical experience. And then we start relating to what we heard and how that's affecting how we're feeling. And then I started just kind of asking questions. Did you guys notice uh, how quickly you felt in, in rapport with everyone around you doing this versus just talking? And people universally said like, yeah, actually it was surprising. Suddenly I felt like connected to everyone in this room in an emotional way. Whereas if I was talking, I may or may not have, but often when we're just talking, we're interfacing through a bit of a persona or a lot of a persona. Um, so that's what I found. I, th I find it really interesting and powerful and I'm looking forward to using more of it. So I would say if you find a group that looks like they really know what they're doing and, and you resonate with it, um, anyone listening, obviously you do it already, but um, circling and that kind of thing where someone can reflect authentically back to you in a way that maybe helps you see something that's not completely obvious to yourself, but definitely in a nonviolent way. You don't want to, you got to be careful of being around, you know, people who just use that as an excuse to kind of be toxic and stuff. I'm sure some of that goes on too. You don't want that kind of thing, but people who are serious about um, their own deepening of truth uh, uh, and then can reflect back on you. I think that's wonderful. I would highly recommend anybody do that. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating practice. I actually came across it. I was at this modern day monastery called Monastic Academy in Vermont, and they they're huge on circling. Uh, and I picked that practice up over there. And now I've been doing it online. There's a platform called Circle Anywhere, and they have several circles every day, and it's very well done. The facility facilitators are great. Uh, just it's been it's been amazing because for me it's like it's like an interpersonal meditation. So like I, you know, I do a lot of meditation myself, but I don't get, you know, and I'm working from home on, I'm on the computer. So it's like, it's good to have more social interaction, but in a completely different way where there's like, there's more transparency and there's less persona and like less of this like social bullshit that we're used to. Uh, you know, you mentioned a lot of that in your book. Um, okay. So what, what is your take on, um, what is your take? <laughs> you always got the psychedelic shirts. I love it. You always, every, every video you got like these trippy, spacey, intergalactic. I love it. Um, what is your take on psychedelics and can they contribute or lead to one's awakening based on your, you know, the people you've worked with? Has that been coming up? How does that play, play a role in awakening? Yeah, I, I say, um, what I tell people when they ask, and I do get asked this question, um, on occasion is, you know, I'm always a little hesitant to recommend anybody use any specific substance or an illicit substance. Cause I just never know. Some people really do have addiction potential and so forth. Now, of course, I don't think, uh, I really don't think hallucinogens generally have, or psychedelics have an yeah. addiction potential generally. In yeah. fact, they can probably, I think we're finding they, they can probably be used to help with other types of addiction. But, um, so I would always sort of put that caution out there. You know, you never know what a mind that is sort of wired for addiction might go, oh yeah, he said I should use psychedelics. So I'm going to go try some meth <laughs> or something, you know? So, um, but yeah, specific to, you know, entheogens or uh, mushrooms, you know, whatever. Um, if, if that's what, if that's what is required for, for someone to, to break through, to get a breakthrough experience, I think it's fine. I really do. And, and, you know, check it out. If you're, if you're interested in, or you, you're inclined in that way, I don't think there's a lot of harm to it. Um, and there could be the benefit of having that opening. But I will say, when it comes to really deepening realization and so forth, um, it probably, they, you probably would find that the practice of using those consistently would fall away, I would think. 
and they could potentially have some side effects. Um, I've seen, you know, I've, I know people who've done really lots and lots of like ayahuasca, lots and lots of entheogens, like, like a lot. Um, and they might say, <laughs> like a surprising amount, uh, and, they, and they might say this, that, that yeah, at some point, th there can almost be an ego reinforcement that starts to go on in that community. Um, these are things I've heard uh, that you it can kind of encourage it's almost like a magical thinking uh, um, more than more than just clear seeing. Uh, so probably like anything in moderation. Um, and uh, I think the biggest utility probably is to really get a first breakthrough. Uh, my Zen teacher had an uh, LSD experience in the 1960s, and that's what set him on the, the path to Zen. Um, for myself, I did try a couple of, uh, I tried LSD a couple of times when I was young um, and had definitely breakthrough experiences. They were so, so out there that I didn't even have a context for them afterwards at all, um, but I knew there was something else for sure. Um, did, they, did they lead me to uh, have uh, further insights uh, into... Uh, you know, really orienting me to, to wanting to wake up. Maybe they did. I, I don't know for sure. Um, so it's, I think it's reasonably common actually that that happens. So I'm not against them. And if someone's really inclined to do it and you do it safely and all that thing, all, all that sort of thing, I, I, I would say, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. I, for me, I feel like that's, you know, when you say you're not sure, like I'm pretty sure that that's what made me like get into meditation. That's what made me start you know, pick, picking up the master in the core teachings of the Buddha, like, like that, was, especially with the toad, like I've done other psychedelics, mushrooms, ayahuasca, um, you know, all profound experiences, but the toad is like, that was the one for me. That was just like a no going back, crazy shift, complete ego dissolution, complete, um, you know, you mentioned in your book, the, the crying and laughing at the same time, because you get the joke of like, oh, there's no need to suffer. There's no, why are we all stepping on each other's toes? There's nowhere to go. There's no one yeah. to be like that ex extreme, like paradoxical, just the bet, like the best feeling you could feel is just crying and laughing at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but then, but then I did, did feel that it's like afterwards, like after those significant shifts, there became less of a pull for psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And I think there's still a lot of like, opening up the unconscious mind and like healing trauma and stuff that it's um, that it could work for, but it's also not a magic pill. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's really weird. Like just like for some people, like psychedelics lead to spirituality, but for some people it leads to conspirituality. And for some people, they just stay in relative reality. Like yeah. it just, it, you know, overall, overall, I just don't, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with them. I think they're, it's, it's probably, probably, you know, it's probably good that they're around. <laughs> say put it that way <laughs> yeah they're here for a reason right like yeah, probably <laughs> there's a there's an insight you share in the book um I, I wonder if this is like the ultimate insight but kind of feels like it but it's like once again it's it's it has paradox tied up in into it um and you basically say there is no way that things really are and you know, from my understanding, this is what emptiness is or the recognition that there is no inherent self. Mm -hmm. And like from a more relative viewpoint, this comes up for me when people are like convinced that someone or something is some way or say things like you're always like this or you always you never or that's not the real you mm -hmm. basically like really trying to solidify something as if it's inherently like this is how it is. Mm -hmm. So yeah. like, can you just like kind of expand on that? I, I sure. just think that that's great. Yeah, you know, um, I'm pretty sure I've said this in other interviews, but uh, to put it simply, uh, the night 
the night I had the first part of the awakening, that's what I describe in the book, which was to unbound consciousness, pure consciousness, pure sense of I without, a, without any word or thought or concept. It was beautiful, massive dissolution. Um, I remember knowing, and I, I had never been around spiritual people or anything like that, but I remember knowing, I, it's like, this is what people really want. This is what, and, and when people get into spirituality, I knew, I knew this is what they wanted. I'm like, this is what they're looking for. Wow. And it wasn't like I have what they're looking for. It's like, oh, we, well, we all have it. Um, the way to access it is to stop becoming, stop trying to be something and just, you know, whatever. But I didn't, I wasn't having to think about this. It was just clear. It was obvious. Um, and then the next morning uh, when I sat to meditate, I was immediately there again. Of course, it was kind of, it didn't really go anywhere, but it, it was just immediate, obvious piece of, of this pure knowingness. Uh, and then it went beyond, completely beyond that to a whole place. I can't, it's not a place, but it went completely beyond that. And then I had a different kind of insight. It didn't feel terrifying for me, but I've heard people describe this part becoming, it can be very terrifying for people at first. Um, but for me, it was, it was like home, but there's no home to be home. And that it's all paradox from here, but, um, it was very, very obvious that the, the self, there's just nothing like a self, not there, there, there was no sense of self and there, there really could never be. Um, but, but I also, then I had the insight. I'm like, this isn't what people are looking for. People aren't really looking for this. This is, it's, you can't even look for this. You can't want this. It's not wantable. Um, and uh, it's not bad. It's just so far beyond anything in the human dimension. It's just, it's so weird to talk about this. So that's one of those things I'm careful talking about because I don't want to discourage anyone because I, I would never discourage anyone from this, but it is so far beyond anything in the human realm, uh, even, the re even the realm of life, even the realm of reality. It's not even, it's beyond reality. It's, it's like, uh, it, it can't, it can, you can't want this. Um, and I knew that. And, and, it's, and, and the words for that were actually something like, there is no way that things are. And I knew that was a truth that pe mostly people don't want to hear. Um, and the way I would describe it is like, when you see the basic functioning of mind, of consciousness, of thought, it's like what it's always kind of trying to do, it's taking a picture of what's happening right now. It's like, click, here's, the, here's what's happening. And then it immediately takes that picture and tries to weave it into a story that has to do with sol solidity, continuity, separation, doership, agency. Like I have to have an ability to do something. I have to have a world in which I can do it. Um, I, I have to feel like I have the power to do anything, right? Because I don't want to feel helpless. Like the, the mind does this so quickly, but that initial picture taking is going, this is how it is. This is how it is. The mind's trying to always pick up on how things are. But when you're able to, however it happens through realization process, whatever, back all the way to that very edge, you realize in one way of saying it, there's nothing happening at all. The picture flashing is the mind. And, and beyond that, there's nothing you can put your hand on anymore. Nothing you can, as my girlfriend says, there's nowhere you could ever rest your head. Um, there's no resting place. There's no solid place. There's no perspective of any kind, but it doesn't mean there's nothing because nothing is also a perspective. It's not no thingness really. Um, no thingness more refers to the, to the non form formed uh, experience of reality. N nothingness or no thingness is actually a, a sort of negation of what the mind puts together as physical reality. It's, it's a pointer, but that's not what I'm pointing to. What I'm pointing to 
is it, you can't even say it's not something. You can't, it's not in the realm of something and nothing or reality and not reality. It's just, it's not even an it. And so, yeah, the, 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 the phrase, there is no way that things are, is kind of a way of saying that, but I can never ever say how this is. Indeterminacy is a pretty good word for it. Um, uh, <laughs> the unborn, I like the term, the unborn is actually bonky. The Zen master used to say that everything's perfectly managed in the unborn, but there is the term unborn also in the suttas, the original suttas. Um, the unborn is a good word for it, but, but it's so uh, ineffable maybe that I, that I, I almost hesitate to even point to it directly because I'd rather just lead people into their own depth of experience to whatever level works for them till they stop feeling suffering. And it may not be this, it doesn't have to be necessarily. Um, yeah, so it's the ultimate affront to the mind, to the thought process that needs solidity. It needs something to be there. It needs there to be something there so it can do anything with it. And it needs to believe it's in time, that it has continuity, that if something's here now, it's going to be here one minute from now or one second from now. But that's not true. What's weird about this, what's super paradoxical about this is the only expression of it is love. The only expression of it is unconditional love. It's it, I, Shanti, I really think he's one of the one of the best teachers you'll ever find. He's just I really love Adyashanti, and he says it like this. He says, you know, the whole physical the whole physical existence, the universe itself could just disappear, and what your true nature is, your true nature wouldn't even notice it. You wouldn't even notice. But with that, with seeing how easily there could be absolutely nothing at all, comes this love of there being anything at all, and everything. So when there's no significance to anything because there's no solidity to anything. And yet this, this non-moment right now is infinitely significant, infinitely significant. That, that's, that's exactly my, that's been my experience with Toad is just like the complete dissolution of everything. And it's just pure nothingness. And then out of that nothingness, this immense love and compassion, just like heartbreaking, heartbreaking open, just, uh, crazy crazy feeling and it's just exact that what you just said reminded me of that um yeah i was gonna yeah go ahead it's like you know there's no there's no relative absolute there's not there's not none of it you know so so what is there left to do is to get out of the way so that that unconditional love can come back and move through the relative at any level it needs to at any place it needs to it doesn't need to tell people they're not awake enough it's not it's nothing like that it's it's just moment to moment complete vulnerability at the human level. That's all it is. That's all it comes down to. Very simple. And what's right in front of your face is all there is. It's an illusion. It's not really anything, but that's, that's all there is. That's all there ever could be. <laughs> Seemingly. It's a, it's a crazy joke. Um, so I was going to ask this at the beginning and it's just, for some reason, it's like alive in me right now. It seems that like people are willing to believe anything but they have so much disbelief and so much skepticism towards awakening or enlightenment or this kind of possibility of a different way of being. And yeah, I don't like, to me, the obvious answer seems that it's just because it's so radically goes against our wiring and how we in relative reality, how it works. Like it's so radically different. Um, that that's why people are just, in, just, you know, I'm just always running into that. Like people are so doubt, there's so much doubt and skepticism and, uh, and you know what? I've learned to let go of that. I just like it's okay. 
but I'm just wondering, like in your experience, when you run into like doubt and skepticism, like what, what is that? And like, why, why is it that people, they will believe anything but this, like the, the, the best yeah. thing they don't want to believe, but they'll believe in anything else. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I don't have an agenda that anyone has to believe anything. I really truly don't like in, in moment to moment life, practical life. I don't have any need to talk about what we're talking about. Um, and, and the, what the, the conduit for that or the way to that is really just love, just loving what's right in front of my face. But also when you, when it's non-dual, meaning there's, it's really weird, but there's not, it's not like there's a person there and there's a person here. It's just these non-dual textures that are so intimate and so beautiful and alive, you know? Um, but in the context of awakening, in the context of realization, uh, for instance, like, okay, some videos that are out there of like my, my interviews with Zubin or occasionally a, um, a review on my book will say something like this. It's like, this is complete mumbo jumbo. Like it doesn't even make sense. The words you're saying make no sense, right? Um, or they'll say like, uh, to say there's no separation is completely stupid. Like that's the most obvious thing in the world. I'm looking and I see separation, right? Um, the, now I don't take offense to that at all. Not, I, I take zero offense to that. I actually know exactly what that is. I know what that is. Um, it's fear, but it's the person who's saying it doesn't know it's fear necessarily because they're not feeling the fear. But what it really is is, we're so identified with thoughts and concepts that something that cannot be neatly and um, uh, conveniently shoved into a concept right now for me to eat right now to make myself comfortable with another concept, that's not okay. That, like it's, it's like a fear of the mystery, right? It's a fear of something that's mysterious, that's unknowable, right? Um, and so it, it is, it's, it's ultimately, it's just a fear of, of letting go of the identity that's tied into thoughts and concepts. And that's why this always comes back to a matter of identity. If you know where somebody's identity is, well, they'll tell you, then you know where they are, you know who they are, and you can meet them at wherever they are. And it's perfectly okay. You don't even have to think about it. Um, so, so yeah, mind identification is a widespread could say it's an illness, but it's, it's the human condition for sure. Meaning identity literally is taking itself from concepts. Look at, I noticed this on planes, like I get on a plane now and people always have to have, used to be reading stuff. Like they'd be reading magazines and stuff. Now it's phones, everyone's on the phones, but, but it's like, just sit on a plane for an hour and don't do anything and just look around. You'll notice people really can't go more than maybe 30 seconds or a minute without engaging their mind, engaging the intellect reading something, watching something on a phone, watching a movie, but to just sit in presence or just be there and just look around. It's almost like taboo to do that. Right. I do it all the time, but cause I'm fascinated by it, but it shows you like the ego is a hungry beast. It needs constant reinforcement that it is there, that there is someone that's moving through. And, and we use con con constant influx of concepts and thinking to actually, it's like a narcotic. It's like an opioid, right? Um, it keeps us a little bit of just asleep enough to not look at the ghastly truth that we're not here in the way we think we are. <laughs> not, not like that. You know, that the, the, the seemingly secure world of, I know what I know and what I know I'm using to keep reinforcing and reassuring myself that I'm never going to die, that I'm never going to grow old, that I'm never going to have an illness, but I'm not vulnerable. Right. That's what, that's what we're doing with, with thoughts. Um, so, so it really, I think it comes down to this, like sort of a fear, but again, I don't need to dispel that fear for anyone. That's, that's what, whatever's happening for anyone is fine. Um, but that's what I read when I see those comments and, and so forth. I don't, I really don't take offense. I get it. And I'm sure I was there when I was, you know, before, certainly before awakening 
there was probably times when if I would have heard something, a message said a certain way, I'd be like, it's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That doesn't make any sense. Ha ha ha. You know, not realizing like I was terrified of what that was actually pointing to. Yeah, that, that, that I am not who I think I am. <laughs> yeah, that, that resonates. That's, I definitely feel that kind of fear, that fear is underlying that. Um, uh, it's, it's just like not, it, it's like, um, it's like still, it's being stuck to con conceptual concepts, logic, like rationality. Um, uh, I, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, Ram Das, and uh, his book be here now. I love that book. It was super trippy. Like it was like a psychedelic trip, that book for me. It was, um, and you know, he, there's, he's like, he's like, listen, I feel bad for the rational man. Like you got what you got a 60 year trip. Like, it's like, eventually you just got to let go of that. Like there's, it's just, there's limits to it. And like that, that's been my experience. Like I just remember driving once and just feeling like I couldn't explain it in any way. It's like, there's, there's limits to rationality. Like there's just, I can't keep, I can't think myself out of this, you know, that, that right there, what you just said though, that's what I call suffering, the suffering of mind identification. And that's how I felt. I felt like I was in a pressure cooker. It's like, you know, and when I see, which this kind of takes a bizarre turn, but when I see some of these kids, like they go and shoot up a high school, you know, um, I look at them and I go, I know where they are. I know what, I know what, it, you know, they have, they have a ton of emotional repression. They're not addressing, of course, but the world, that, that mental world they live in, that's just numb and they're, they're suffering so much and trying to find the answer. And they get so distanced from themselves, from, from humanity, from other people that people to them look like cardboard cutouts or something, you know, almost, um, I get it. Like I, I, we live in, uh, in a sort of ocean of suffering in a way, the hu the collective human consciousness, I think Eckhart Tolle's right, that there's the pain body thing makes sense that there's this sort of life force of, of, of pain body that, lives in human consciousness and it goes dormant, but it can activate in the right conditions for sure. And what are those conditions? Well, there's families where everybody abuses each other, even sexually abuses each other. There's whole nations who commit genocide, like, you know, and then 20 years before they were just normal people. 20 years later, they're just normal people, but something happened in those period, that period where people can become incredibly violent. So we, to the degree that we're asleep, to the degree we're on, that we're unconscious willingly, we carry around the potential to, to allow that to activate, to, um, to perpetuate violence on ourselves or others. Um, and so once you really pick that up, once I think you, you, you sense that that's true, especially when you start, this starts to deepen, it's like, you have, you, you know, you kind of feel compelled, like there, what else are you going to do? You have to really dispel ignorance at every level. And that's, you know, where Buddhism kind of shines. I mean, that's exactly what Buddha said, and he was right on the money. There's this immense paradox that's coming up for me right now about you. <laughs> uh, it's funny, you're an anesthesiologist and, and then you teach awakening and, it, and it's like, it's like you put people to sleep and you numb people out and then you wake people up and like make them feel more. So it's, yeah. I don't know, it's so funny that just came up to me right now. It's kind of bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, I guess, you mentioned paradox so many times, and I'm like fascinated with paradox. You, you write in the book, paradox isn't a side effect of awakening. The truth of the matter is that the natural state of things, let's call it reality, is by its very nature entirely paradoxical. And, and this resonated for me. And I actually think before I got into meditation, uh, before I got into spirituality, psychedelics, that thought just came, was started coming to me. Like, I don't know if it was intuition or what it was. It would just come. Life is a paradox. Life is a paradox. And I didn't know 
what it meant, but it just felt like super real. It just felt like it was pulling me somewhere. Um, I'm not sure if there's much more that can be said about Paradox, but maybe you have something more to, 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 to add on it, to it. Well, you know, like I, 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 try, I put the, that chapter was maybe the most fun one to write. It was really fun to write it, you know, because in one way of speaking, it's probably the most accurate chapter in the book, right? Paradox says so much. It says, first of all, that you can't say anything in a way, but it also says paradoxically that you can sure say a lot and that can point to something that's not pointable to, right? It's just paradox after paradox. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's experienced here. It's very obvious. Like the, the, the everything, the, the, when, you, when you finally see the, the nothingness, the, 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 the empty nature of everything, strangely, only then can you experience swallowing saliva fully for the first time in your life and know the depth of that know that that's the whole universe doing that taking one step and it's the whole universe taking a step now this is absurd to the normal way of thinking but keep waking up and you'll know what this means it's like holy shit that's exactly what it is that's everything as one step that that's a miracle it's amazing and it's not a miracle that angelo performed it's a mir it's a miracle of reality doing what reality does for no one you know um there's there's a pair there's paradoxes in in no self like uh you know that there there's that advaita vedanta videos where people say there's no self there's no one to do anything there's no seeker there's no one that can you know it's a way of teaching and it, it can transmit it can actually be a pretty powerful transmission but it has its limits because it, it starts to feel fixated after a while it starts to feel like a message that can that, that's not that's not flexible at all that's not how reality is you know as adi shanti says you'll never have no sense of self whatsoever it doesn't make sense right it, if someone calls your name and you can't even recognize that someone calls your name like you're going to be absolutely non-functional right so that at least in one sense that's a sense of self but the underlying sense of self as as an identity of identity structure is doesn't exist at all it's nowhere to be found and never can be and yet you can function very easily in the practical sense. It's simple. It's not a problem. I don't have to walk around going, oh, there's no Angelo. And what happened here was, and I don't have to talk like that because there's no, there's no um, contradiction between the relative and absolute, between the conventional and, you know, unfiltered reality. It's, it's, it, it, it intermixes perfectly. In fact, it has to, they have to be one in the same to see clearly. When you see one side, you're not seeing clearly. When you see both sides at the same time, that's clarity one way of speaking but then when you see both sides you can see every side at once one side two sides four sides doesn't matter you know um so yeah uh in simple terms for somebody who's maybe just starting out or whatever i would just say hey look at the look at the types of stories and movies that we really love they're the ones that are paradoxical they have massively surprising endings and and especially the ones that involve a shift in perception of the of the person of what they thought was going on you know fight club or the matrix um or whatever um but but things that are paradoxical you know even literature the book it was the best of times it was the worst of times the first line in, in the book is par completely paradoxical and yet it conveys something that you didn't have to be alive during the french Re revolution to understand about your life right um paradox conveys so much uh in art uh, and so forth and the re there's a reason for that um, and that is that reality itself is paradoxical, which is so wonderful. Yeah, I feel like I'm in a psychedelic trip right now. <laughs> I feel I feel like I feel like hanging out with you could get real trippy real quick. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. For sure. So what what's 
what's next for you? What's, what are you, what are you doing? Is there another book? Oh, or- oh, okay. I was like, Oh God, I can't answer that question. Sorry. Let me, uh, yeah, no worries. No worries. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, I've had many requests to do an audio book of the one I already wrote. So I'll probably try to record that in the near future. Um, and I will definitely write the second book. I don't know what the time frame within the next year or two, uh, making video, like a lot of YouTube videos right now, which I'm really enjoying. Um, see, you got yeah. the studio set up. That's what I you're got doing. Studio set up. Yeah. The videos so are awesome. Got, yeah, it's fun. So I've got all that going on. Um, but the funny thing is really moment to moment. I don't even know what I'm going to do next. It's so funny. Uh, that, but that, that probably those, those things will come up. I'm, I'm pretty sure over the next year to two years. And, um, that's about it. More retreats. Are you planning? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Retreats. Yeah. So we do, we're doing bigger retreats now. Um, I do, I do a retreat at my house a couple of times a year, but I can only host, you know, 10, 11 people or something at the most in my Zendo and people come from in town too. But, uh, um, but yeah, more people were asking for retreats than I could host. So I'm just looking for places to host them. And it's tricky now with the, with the pandemic and stuff to do in-person retreats, but I do have online retreats that I'm doing. I'm doing one starting tomorrow, actually for four days. I didn't post it like publicly. I only posted it to a few lists because I'm using zoom to do it. And there's a limit to a hundred people. Um, I don't think I'm gonna have a hundred people this retreat, but if I do my wide list, uh, it might be too many people and then they wouldn't, I don't want people not to be able to get in. So at some point I'll find a way to make that maybe bigger if, if we need to. Um, but I'll, and then I'll be able to post my online retreats, like so people can just join in. Yeah. Yeah. Angelo, um, it's just been a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, just reading your work, doing the, the meditations. I've been using your meditation app and I just love the meditations on there and uh, watching your videos on YouTube. And yeah, somebody, like I said, somebody recommended me you on uh, Daniel Ingram. Two people actually recommended me. And, I, and one person recommended it. I went and I, I researched you. And then I was like, all right, I'll come back to him. Cause they were like, oh, you got to have him on the podcast. And then somebody else mentioned you again and I was like all right now there's two people mentioned let me go and and I really started to dive into your stuff and uh yeah it's just been fascinating and like the way I experienced you is like super transparent like like just like very like a mirror um just nowhere to get stuck like um and the teaching once again it's just like um it's just it's like it needs a category in its own because it's just so clean there's just no it's like it's the pointing is uh, I just told somebody yesterday I was like I think that your book might be like the last book somebody may need for like awakening. Like it's like you read that book and like you, anything else is just, you know, more intellectualizing spirituality, but like, this is, this is it. Like, this is just simple, you know, just simple pointing to what is. Um, yeah. And so I, I just want to thank you for elevating con- you quote unquote <laughs> for elevating consciousness, for, you know, helping us discover deeper levels of truth meeting and wholeness. Um, and thanks a lot for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. For sure. Um, I hope to speak soon and, um, I hope we, we stay in touch for sure. Take care, man.